I don't know that I've ever thought of it as、uh, promoting yourself as the primary objective. I've always thought that actually it's the moral imperative of getting great science out there. So, welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today's episode is about digital presence and digital scholarship. Now, fittingly, this is actually a recording of a live podcast interview that I did with Teresa Chan earlier this year.、Uh, we recorded it during the Harvard Macy program, "Transforming Your Teaching Using Technology." And in this, we aim to showcase podcasting as one of those technologies,、uh, which might be used by those of you who are looking to transform your teaching. But of course, we also aim to talk about the、uh, establishing, maintaining, and curating our online and digital presences, and perhaps most importantly, how that might be useful to us as educators and as scholars. So the conversation starts with me introducing Teresa. I'm joined today by Teresa Chan, and we're going to be talking about digital presence and digital scholarship, which I know is of great interest to the Harvard Macy community. How are you, Teresa? I'm great. Thank you very much. It's a lovely day here in Hamilton, Ontario, where I currently reside.、Uh, I'm from McMaster University and、uh, alumni of the HMI Leaders. So really excited to be here. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to dive right in, Teresa, and because、uh, I want to talk about digital presence, and I, I'm going to start by having a look at your website here because I had the chance to have a look at it. This is tchanmd.com, and here you describe yourself. I'm a clinician educator who practices emergency medicine in Hamilton, Ontario. My night job allows me to fund my medical education habit, as I like to conduct research and engage in innovation to enhance patient care by improving our educational systems. And then you've got in there a few of your more formal qualifications. Uh, your associate professor at McMaster University, your postnominals, and you've got a lovely link to your 2017 TEDx talk. So tell me, that speaks volumes already, doesn't it? You've obviously made some choices about how you want to present yourself online. Tell me what you're trying to achieve and how do you do it? I don't know that I was super intentional about the website, and so I'll point out that it's a work in progress. And every so often, I blow it all up and start all over again from the get go. But I do know that when I was first becoming someone who wanted to be more online, that I wanted a home base, right? So Michael Hyatt has a conceptual framework、um, from the book platform that kind of talks about different things that you might want to consider when you're thinking about your digital presence. And having a home base is actually something that's really important, something that you own, that no one else has to like log in somewhere to like alter for you, that you can really control、um, for yourself. And there's so many platforms out there. I'm using Wix for my website, but there are other、um, website platforms, WordPress or even Google Sites, that can help with all of that. And I chose a domain name and still continue to pay for it because it, it aligns with my、uh, digital presence. I. Had started a Twitter account with TCNMD as the as a space holder because my brother told me that I might want to use this new Twitter thing in two thousand I believe nine, and so I got an account、uh, and then it gathered virtual dust for about four years until my mentor Jonathan Sherbino, who is a clinician educator and emerge doc as well,、um, who's seen on Twitter as at Sherbino and one of the hosts of the、uh, Keyline podcast. I asked him how he kept up to date considering. He、uh, he was done residency, and he said Twitter, and I said no, really, and he said no, seriously, Twitter, and he explained to me why, and I don't need to bore this group with that because I'm sure that、um, most of you are actually listening to this podcast link 
through a link through Twitter. So what ended up happening was that I, I uh, dusted that off and actually started using it. I started aligning the rest of my digital presence to that kind of moniker with um, LinkedIn as well and uh, the website. And so mm. that's kind of how I came about to to think about how to start developing that brand. Yeah. So it sounds like consistency with your digital presence uh, has been important as a professional. And uh, the website that you're talking about here is one that sounds like it's a curation of your other digital presences and which you're very active on Twitter. You've got a LinkedIn page. You've got some space on McMaster. You're on Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, many other places. And so you kind of pull all this together as a curation page. Is that right? Yeah, I think about it as like um, a digital portfolio of the work that I'd like to link out to. So um, some people have educator portfolios they have to do for work, um, but most of those are usually turned in as a PDF and not kept as a live entity. This was my kick at trying to figure out how I could put together a bit of a digital portfolio. And so it doesn't just link to things. It actually gives you a little bit of the, the backstory behind you know, like the drama behind or the successes or the failures behind this project or the other. And yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And it seems as though some of that is also about your identity uh, as Tichan versus McMaster versus uh, participation, participant or leader in other online communities. How do you balance that, do you think? I try to be authentic across all the platforms and be myself. I, I'm not that person that can have different facades and different manifestations of myself i'm pretty authentic across you know my podcasting my blogging my twitter my linkedin but not everyone does that some people have you know um some kind of joke account and they're anonymous and so i I do know that there's some safety uh that needs to be there in order for you to feel secure i think because of my positionality as a clinician educator i might have been a little bit more psychologically safe i think um Mm -hmm. and knowing that i was going to be judged by my college of physicians anyway um i needed to keep above board and so everything else from there kind of had to flow to be um you know Mm. uh, something pretty transparent anyway so yeah that sounds like that with that deep knowledge you've got you're able to mitigate those risks and identify what they are and uh, filter them there's never none uh, but it sounds like you've thought hard about what are relevant to you uh, so I want to now. I know one of the readings that uh, our scholars had was your paper, "Social Media in the 21st Century Scholar: How You Can Harness Social Media to Amplify Your Career." And in that, there's a lot of practical advice, uh, published in a radiology journal of interest. Uh, but in this, you actually argue that disseminating via online platforms really is a responsibility for uh, medical education, scholars, academics, researchers. Uh, that, that sounds like a next level up from just enjoying promoting yourself. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've ever thought of it as uh, promoting yourself as the primary objective. I've always thought that actually it's the moral imperative of getting great science out there into use cases because what's the point of doing research if no one's going to you know, take your research and roll with it. And whether or not you're someone that is going to do the rolling yourself, or if you're going to kick it over to someone who is going to take your stuff and do that knowledge translation, part of that is actually just the dissemination, right? So that used to be in the old days, I guess, and probably soon enough, again, in real life, uh, we can actually go to conferences and present on podiums and stand by posters. I think all of those will probably still stand the test of time, or at least for a little while beyond the pandemic. But 
I think there are new ways of having greater traction, right? I talk, I talk to a lot of junior faculty and give presentations about how, you know, I'm speaking to 61 other people right now in this like live studio recording of this podcast, which is pretty amazing. But the podcast itself is going to go out to hundreds, if not thousands of people. Um, the website and the blog posts that accompanies it might go to even more people. And so I think that we just have to think about how the knowledge that we want to share is actively shared and what's the most efficient for you as a scholar um, to let people know that there is some great stuff that deserves to be considered. And the paper was kind of interesting because you really used two case studies, uh, one of whom is a person I know well, Brent Toma, uh, and you actually walked through their personal experience of using social media uh, both to inform their own practice, whether that is clinical or educational, but also then to um, establish themselves within the communities of practice. Uh, that's actually quite an unusual way to present a paper, and yet it probably is the most practical thing you could do. Yeah, I think that whenever I write papers, there's always a stalwart way you can do things. But when you're invited to write a commentary, I think you got to take the, the bull by the horns and actually just use that license to actually do something innovative and different. And I think that when you're trying to be a teacher, um, you know, we all know case-based vignettes are great, right? And so we're like, why not just use one of our authors or two of our authors' experiences to highlight kind of some of the steps that we wanted people to think about, right? And so um, Dave Stukas, who's a pediatric allergist um, who is the other person that uh, kind of talked about his advocacy as opposed to being an educator. He is more of an advocate and uh, has been even more so during the pandemic as all pediatricians have become actually. And so that's why we wanted to put this out there was was really to kind of open the conversation around how an online digital presence might help you um, be an educator and also maybe be an, a health advocate slash educator of patients and and families in this case, um, so that they, we can actually get out there. And I think the pandemic actually highlighted how important the skill is. And But really, that's probably where the world was going already. And it was a strong signal that we leaned into on this paper. But, you know, this paper is much more useful now on the other side of a global pandemic where there's been misinformation and, mm. you know, knowledge dissemination has become so important for us in healthcare. So I think that that's yeah. maybe why there's been a redux and, a, you know, recitation of some of <laughs> this earlier work now at this point. I guess that speaks to the fact that this does require a repertoire of skills, Teresa. Uh, and it's probably quite hard for you at this point in 2022 to think about what those are because it seems to me like you've picked them up over the last 12 years uh, of getting different skill sets and knowledge of platforms. Maybe it'd be useful for our Harvard Macy listeners to take an example. Do you want to think about maybe a paper you've written and then what you do with it in order to disseminate it across different platforms? Can you give us an example of that? Let's say I get uh, a notification that I have a paper that's been accepted. Probably when I submitted the paper, the journal probably made me write a tweet about it already. So that was nice, right? So I might have collaborated with my co-authors to think about how to position that. I do think that uh, like that is now increasingly a part of the scientific process is that the journals want to help you promote your paper because it's their paper too. And so that collaboration forces some of that thoughtfulness. Backtracking a little bit even more, I try to now use some visuals as, as thoughtfully as possible so that I know that everyone's going to take the first figure or one of the key figures in the paper as a screen cap that they're going to use to like promote the paper or 
talk about it. Or sometimes the journal, when you put the URL, they've embedded a picture and it's going to be that picture from the paper. So I try to make sure the visuals in the actual paper are ones that I wouldn't be embarrassed about if the URL automatically grabs one of the images and it's that one. And so I want to make sure that that's probably thoughtfully um, put together when we actually do the paper to begin with. And so that also means that, you know, I usually have a color and then the ugly black and white version that, that the journals make you submit. Um, and so the color version is what I give to all my faculty, like my colleagues who uh, present the paper at conferences and all the things like that. And then the black and white version that is toned down is, you know, standard for the journal, then probably is what actually ends up being published. And that allows us to have kind of two versions of that. Now, fast forwarding, you've got your papers submitted, then sometimes it comes on online first. And so you might want to time some kind of like maybe blog post or a podcast or some other kind of collaboration. Some shops even do press releases for journal articles if they think it's important. I know my friend Seth Kruger's shop uh, Northwestern does that quite a bit. They have press releases about papers of note. And so I've been privy to their um, help with that sometimes. And then I think you flash forward to um, a little bit further down the route and it's officially published. And I think there's different avenues that you might be able to, again, cycle back to it, tweet about it. Uh, link mm -hmm. to it in other discussions, hop on a tweet chat. and Yeah, so this is a lovely melange of platforms, techniques, and tools. Uh, and it seems like it's melding the old and the new. You're still in this journal, uh, albeit not necessarily in paper anymore. But you've done the work with blogs, podcasts. You've used, I don't know, tools like Canva to make these lovely images that you've put in your paper to begin with. You're tweeting, but you're also, I presume, getting your co-authors some nice materials to help them tweet. You're giving the journal material to tweet. Um, I haven't heard you, uh, and you've certainly talked about podcasts and then curating it, it'll land back on your website again, which is uh, another place where people might find it. Uh, I haven't heard you talk about Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, uh, Snapchat. Uh, is that because there's less of you on those spaces or they're just not bet as good for these things? Yeah, so uh, I don't have a TikTok yet, I think is the probably the word I should add to that sentence. I don't have TikTok yet. Um, I haven't figured out how I might use that as an educator, but maybe I'll figure it out eventually. Instagram, I do have a presence, but it's more personal for that one. But it's mainly because it takes a lot of effort for me to create custom images that are worthwhile enough. And and so that's part of the barrier, I think, to Instagram for me is that I, I don't have the bandwidth anymore to make um, like a graphic for every paper. Um, and then uh, Facebook is very personal for me and my high school and university friends could care less about really about my publications. LinkedIn tends to be more professional networking. So I, I don't do a lot of publishing there about my uh, posts, but what I do is actually, I, if I might write like um like a little essay or a blog post equivalent about a program of research or a theme, and then I would like actually like cite my papers or link out to them in in that kind of fashions. And then the last thing would be that I have a Google Scholar account that's open, so that if people want to find me, and then I say for full. Um, you know, listing of all publications go to my Google Scholar. So it sounds like, and I'm not sure there's an easy way to this, is it, that you've 
through a lot of experience, identified where the places are. And it sounds like there's not an easy short course on that. It's a moving target and it's personal because it depends on your style, your message and the places and the audiences that you're trying to connect with. What I'm going to do now for our uh, live audience listening is to invite you to start putting some questions in the chat for us. I've got one more question I'm going to ask Teresa. But if people have got some questions, thoughts or comments that you'd like uh, Teresa to answer or me or for us to discuss, please put them in the chat there now. Uh, So the one thing I wanted to talk with you about, Teresa, uh, is a little bit meta to talk about podcasting uh, because I know you run your Mac PFD Spark podcast, which I've listened to, and you've also done a good job of getting others to be hosts on that podcast. Uh, Tell me what's your uh, aims and tricks for that. And even as you think about that, uh, I see one of our live audience members who says uh, one of the hardest things is being present in the conversation while also thinking where is the conversation going to go? How do you do that? When you're thinking about how to connect with people and how to um, get people interested and engaged, I think it's about just being, again, authentic and and making it easy for people. So I don't use anything super uh, intimidating. People find like having to go to a different kind of environment very jarring. And so I actually just record on Zoom. And we tolerate that it's not the highest quality. It's not Riverside or some of these other apps, but it's also less intimidating. And then the other part of it too is like, um, if people have a microphone, then, you know, making sure they have a microphone. If they don't, then earpods just like the way that you have on right now are just fine. And, um, and miking in would be just fine. And like making sure that people know that you'll do some post-production and make them sound good. That's all really important too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, there's a couple of little comments here uh, about s- structuring things. But you're quite right, the technicality does matter. You're a better person than me if you tolerate poor audio. Uh, and it's sometimes a little thing, like as you say, uh, if you have this really beautiful microphone, if it's over here, it doesn't really much help at all. Uh, but if it actually is up here, you sound pretty much like the radio guy. And that's all go. And that's a great thing. Uh, now, a couple of our audience comments. Uh, how much of your conversation is scripted? Do you agree on an outline before the interview? Well, I can speak for this. We had a very vague outline, didn't we, Teresa? But uh, a couple of things I've asked you that you wouldn't have anticipated. So I think we've hopefully run the balance between uh, spontaneous versus scripted and structured versus completely uh, off-piste. Uh, one here that's admiration, Teresa. You're one of my Twitter digital mentors. How do you allocate your time towards your digital endeavours? It's true. You seem to be everywhere. Uh, do you want to answer that one? I actually clocked myself in the last week. I spend less than half an hour on Twitter in total now. Um, and if you can believe it, um, because I do have other people that help with other accounts. And so I used to be the social media person that flipped through all the accounts. But um, as I've progressed on in academia, I have onboarded other people and, you know, um, been a mentor to others to run institutional accounts, to have multi-user accounts and actually grown capacity. Yes. So leveraging others is very important. All right. To finish up, we've got a couple of um, questions here about podcasting. Jonathan uh, Windrum asks, what's the ideal length of time for a podcast? I'll tell you, Jonathan, I spend a lot of time now on podcasts about podcasting uh, and in quite a few digital worlds where podcast people get together. 
Uh, and really, it's probably more diverse than you think. It depends on your purpose. Tim Ferriss's podcasts go for an hour and a half. Joe Rogan's, some of them go for hours, and they have millions and millions of listeners. Um, so I think if people tell you this is the definite ideal length, they're not, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, I, I think my podcast, for what it's worth, are usually between 20 and 30 minutes because I think that's about a train ride or a drive. Uh, but I also know people that don't mind if it's longer and they just listen to it uh, on the way up and then on the way back. So I think the answer is uh, as long as you want to do it. Uh, and then I think the other comment here is there's so many good podcasts. Uh, how do you select which ones to listen to? And would anyone listen to me? I think this speaks to why you're doing it. It's very hard to persist with a podcast as one who's done one for five years. Uh, so you have to want to do it for you uh, unless you are very interested in making money, which most of us aren't, uh, then uh, I think that's important. Dan Nicholas tells us, and here's a shout out to Charting Pediatrics, and he shoots for 20 to 30 minutes as well. Well, fantastic. Well, Teresa Chan, this has just been a delightful conversation, thinking about all things digital presence, digital scholarship, uh, and how to promote our messages online, how to get the most out of the work that we are doing and share it with others, get critique, uh, and a little bit of a deep dive on podcasting as well. Well, I'll thank Teresa for being here. And uh, just for our listeners know, we're going to have a part two of this podcast coming up where we do a deep dive on digital scholarship. But for now, thank you very much, Teresa. So thanks to Teresa Chan for that episode, and of course to the faculty and scholars of the Transforming Your Teaching Using Technology program who joined our conversation. Now the links to Teresa's website and to the papers, books and platforms we discussed are all in the show notes that accompany this episode. And if you want to know more about the Transforming Your Teaching Using Technology program, check out the Harvard Macy Institute website, that's harvardmacy.org. This is Victoria Brazel signing off for the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Mm-hmm.